Hi, I'm Judith Namer. I work at the Bielefeld School of Public Health. I'm a postdoctoral researcher uh, working on migration and health. Research has been engaged in a lot of atrocities. A lot of the knowledge that we still use today come from colonial practices. So we have to address this. Decolonizing practices are of course one process, but in my feeling it has to be solid. Hi everyone, thank you for listening to this episode of Researching Diversity. I'm Tuccia Aral, I'm a PhD student and a research associate in the Inclusive Education Department at the University of Potsdam. Hey everyone, I'm Zeynep Demir and I work as a researcher and lecturer at the Working Group Socialization at the Faculty of Educational Science at Bielefeld University and also in research projects at the Institute for Interdisciplinary Research on Conflict and Violence. Today we have Judith Nemar as our guest. We're so happy to host you, Judith especially because your research is so important and needs so much more attention. And as we know that, you were a great colleague to Zainab during a project you both worked in Bielefeld University. So what can you expect from this episode? This episode is about immigration, othering and health, and how discrimination and othering influence first and second generation immigrants' health. But in this episode, you will also hear about how researchers need to challenge the long-established colonial practices in research through relational justice and relational ethics. Besides these topics, Judith mentions her own personal story, how she became a psychotherapist and a researcher, how having three different professions allows her to reclaim more space and have more sources of self-worth. As always, you can find references to the studies that we mention on our website. And in the bonus material, you can find out information about doing PhD in Turkey. All right, let's start with the episode. Welcome, Judith, and thanks for being here. As in every episode, we will start talking about the past. I would like to ask you, why did you become interested in the topic of migration and health? I actually ended up uh, researching migration and health after, after my arrival uh, in Germany. Um, before that, when I was living in Turkey, I was mostly doing uh, research on mental health and different um, Uh, different determinants, different social determinants of mental health, such as gender identity, sexual orientation, experience of discrimination. Uh, and after uh, coming to Germany, um, migration seemed to be an important social determinant of health. Uh, and that's how I ended up um, doing my research on this topic. Wow, nice. And um, why did you become a researcher? Uh, that's also quite complicated. <laughs> uh, I um, initially trained to be a psychotherapist and I um, am a psychotherapist. Um, so I did my master's in clinical psychology uh, and I, I did it in the US and I went back to Turkey. Um, and while I was living there and working as a psychotherapist, I realized uh, that so many social and structural constructs affect my clients' uh, health in general. Um, and actually, most of the things that they were bringing to psychotherapy weren't individual issues, but things that um, were affecting them. Um, and they were due to social and structural inequalities. Yeah, it felt, it felt disingenuous uh, to be working as a psychotherapist and not addressing um, the issues that were bringing my clients to psychotherapy. Uh, so that's how I... Um, ended up being a researcher, but I was a psychotherapist first. And I think 
that's how I would qualify myself. I'm first a psychotherapist and then a researcher. Okay, then um, I would like to ask you, um, so which challenges did you encounter on the way of becoming a psychotherapist and a researcher? So you have a bridge between the science and the practice. Um, with uh, psychotherapy, um, I think that's uh, something a lot of people experience. I um, I did my bachelor's work in the UK and my master's uh, qualification in the US. Um, and one thing that I think most um, uh, multicultural psychotherapist experience is the difference between different countries in terms of regulations of how you become a psychotherapist uh, or what is acceptable and what is not acceptable in psychotherapy. I mean, one thing I remember, uh, for example, in the US, um, this very strict uh, rule that, you know, you cannot touch uh, your <laughs> clients. However, this doesn't work in Turkey, especially when you're working with children and adolescents they will want to hug you, they will want to make contact with you, they will, and if you don't do that, this is actually something that uh, would disrupt the trust between the therapist and the client. Um, so I think uh, one of the biggest challenges uh, was to translate uh, this type of information, this type of cross-cultural information uh, to my practice. Um, so yeah, so that was I think, the main challenge. Um, and I think that's something that I experienced still today. Um, and after coming to Germany, I realized it is not an automatic um, process. I cannot just continue working as a psychotherapist. There are different uh, country-based regulations, the approbation processes. Um, so yes, there is also kind of that layer. Um, of administration, uh, which as a researcher, you don't actually have. Uh, I mean, usually once you have a degree, it automatically translates to another country, more or less, depending on the discipline. Um, so I didn't have that uh, while when I moved to Germany, my PhD worked automatically in Germany. Um, and also my, my knowledge in other countries actually enriched me, I think, uh, while uh, doing a PhD. It's interesting to see the cross-cultural perspectives to psychotherapy and research. I mean, I'm also um, a psychologist and a researcher with migration background, and I share your opinions in that um, issues. Can you share um, what did you learn along the way? You have a long way with different cultures behind you. You've studied and researched in UK, also in US and in Turkey. Um, Can you share your um, experiences on the learning way, what, what, what you have in your pocket? What helped me um, having these different kind of cross-cultural experiences is I mean, something that I shared with um, other researchers who kind of had to migrate to another country. Um, there is all this topic about researcher integration, researcher integration uh, into different systems. Um, but I think um, academic settings are more or less like very similar to each other. I mean, there are, of course, country-based barriers in, in every academic system. Um, but I, I think it's like I found it very easy to... Um, switch from one academic setting to another. I found it difficult to 
switch from one country to another. Uh, so our academic experiences don't necessarily translate into the country-based experiences. Um, but I think like being a researcher um, like makes it really um, easy uh, for one person to experience different cultures. Um, and what is in my pocket in that sense is that it feels like I can survive um, in any country as long as I'm at a university <laughs> or as long as I'm, at a, I'm with fellow um, academics, fellow researchers, uh, because that relationship seems to be, yeah, it's, it's translatable. It seems somehow universal, so to say. It's so impressive to hear that universities can also be um, a safe space and um, a place where we can grow, where we can change and where we can um, adapt things. It's so impressive for me to hear that. We worked together in the project and I'm a junior researcher and it was so nice to um, learn and now still learn from you some research and academic steps. Um, the do's and don'ts in the science and academia. Um, I would like um, to um, ask you, what advices would you give to other junior researchers in Germany, especially maybe for junior researchers like me with migration backgrounds who are um, now in the orientation um, stage for their PhDs or um, in the transition stage? What um, advices would you like to give? Um, I mean, I would say... Um, reclaiming space is very important. Um, I know space, um, I mean, we talk about universities being safe spaces, uh, but those spaces aren't necessarily open. So you have to be in that space in order for that space to be safe. Um, so my, um, my advice uh, would be to uh, take the space, reclaim the space, Don't let anybody take that space away from you um, and make sure that um, you create your own spaces. In, even if it's a very kind of small uh, area, uh, like a small places that we could reclaim for ourselves, um, I would say um, trying to claim that, expand that, include as many people as possible in that space uh, so that our space, safe spaces expand um with uh, so it also creates more spaces for other people i don't know whether that makes sense or not yeah um absolutely i mean um i really appreciate your um new definitions new perspectives we live in a post-migration society in germany and i think we need this kind of changes and these kind of perspectives in science and i really appreciate it mm. I know that science can be with ups and downs, especially now in a um, corona pandemia um, time. Can you say something good that happened to you this week? One thing that the pandemic, I think, allowed, that's a strange way to put it, um, but I think our meetings are more intimate, our teaching is more intimate. I'm very happy that, um, you know, you are in somehow like somehow in my home right now i'm very happy that when i talk to my students they are somehow in my home um and yeah i i think that's um well the one upside uh for me that we are kind of getting to know each other on a more intimate basis uh, and i say i mean i have to say 
the quality of my teaching and I think has improved because I'm more relaxed. Uh, I, yeah, I can, uh, my students are more relaxed. Um, and yeah, this kind of uh, makes things a little better. So I, um, I know you are also teaching in uh, public health and you are doing your research, you are a psychotherapist, so you have um, different roles uh, for the science and for the practice. What is the feeling about being a scientist with all these roles? I mean, first of all, it's, um, I don't have all my eggs in one basket. <laughs> so when something goes wrong, because things go wrong, Things go wrong all the time. Um, I think it's it doesn't get me down that much in the sense that, um, I mean, if the teaching has gone bad one week, I know I always have my research or I always have my psychotherapy. If I had um, some, yeah, some downs in the research world, there's always a teaching that you can compensate for. I mean, I think personally, that kind of allows me to First, I mean, reclaim more space, um, but also have more, I don't know, sources of self-worth. That means uh, anything specific to you. But also, I think it's having these roles make me better in each of these roles. I, I know I'm a better researcher because I'm a psychotherapist. Um, I know um, that... Um, I think about my relationships with my research participants because I have my psychotherapy training. Um, or when I'm in psychotherapy and you know one of my clients uh, tell me something about the structural discrimination or racism that they experience, I know it's something that I can address in research so I don't feel powerless um, in, in the face of hearing that. So I think that's... Um, allows me to you know, have a little more power in each of these roles, to have multiple roles. We are now at the end of the past part of this podcast. It was so empowering and authentic. I really appreciate um, your answers, your suggestions. And um, we, I have the feeling now that um, we have an um, yeah, insight to your way of becoming a researcher from so different perspectives. It's so enriching. Thank you. This brings us um, to our next section, the present. What paper did you bring today? Um, today I brought um, a paper that really inspired me um, called Beyond Acculturation, Immigration, Discrimination and Health Research Among Mexicans in the United States. Um, it's by um, a researcher I admire very much and unfortunately she um, passed away um, early this year. Uh, her name is Edna Viral Fuentes. Um, she is um, a Mexican-American um, researcher. I was born in Mexico, um, got her training in the US um, and did a lot of research uh, on health disparities and what acculturation means um, in terms of um, different generations and in terms of health. So that's the paper that I'd like to uh, yeah, talk today. 
Okay. I mean, it sounds very interesting. I also read the paper. Uh, but um, why do you think, why is this paper an outstanding paper? Um, I think it's because it um, challenges um, this very kind of dominant paradigm uh, in research acculturation. Um, I mean, when we talk about acculturation, usually the first thing that we talk about or we think about is Barry's model of acculturation, um, which is everywhere. <laughs> um, and it's, it's a very, very dominant paradigm, um, but it doesn't always take into account um, racism, structural discrimination, or all of these kind of structural global uh, processes that goes outside of the individual. Um, as a person who comes from psychology, um, I see the uh, disadvantages of talking about the individual that we see uh, in psychology most of the time and everything is individualized. And I think what she does in this paper it is to take this very psychological account uh, of moving to another place and moving to another culture and widens it uh, in a way that takes into account the realities of living um, in a place that is a new home for you. Um, while we were talking, you brought up this uh, word acculturation. And could you please briefly explain what we mean with acculturation? And also, as a follow-up, um, this article talks about othering. And maybe can you kind of differentiate what's the differences? Of between. course. I mean, it would be my definition of acculturation and my definition of othering. Uh, but I would define acculturation as um, a process of um, retaining your culture and also uh, learning about the other person's or other the host country's culture um, during the process of migration. Um, so that would be my definition of acculturation. Um, and for othering, it's, um, I mean, othering is a little difficult to define in the sense that it's, it's a really, really broad topic, but put very simply, um, it's the, the process and practices of um, making the other person feel excluded, feel not part of the us uh, and make them feel like them. Yeah, thank you so much. And if you had to explain this paper to your grandma, very, very simply, how would you put this? How would you do this? Uh, well, I would say uh, to my grandma um, that um, after, who's also a migrant, by the way, so I think she would, she would understand what <laughs> this means. Um, but yeah, what I would say to her um, is that after you um, move to another country, uh, your experiences and your children's experiences are going to be different. Uh, and how this migration process affects you uh, and your children will mean different health consequences uh, for you. And I, I would also say that it's really important to have this intergenerational communication um, about this process so um, that the two generations don't feel removed from each other um, and have a, have a common uh, migration story. So, very simply. Yeah, 
Yeah, I think it's very important that um, we also talked in one of our um, other episodes uh, how about, uh, about the family, ethnic socialization and intergenerational um, communication. But I was also wondering, um, like I read this article and what was very striking for me, the result that there's a difference between the first generation immigrants held and the second generation immigrants held. And I was reading that second generation immigrants are suffering more from othering and their health outcomes. I'm guessing these are physical health outcomes, right? It's not mental health outcomes. Um, they are like, kind of worse than the first generation. And there are some protective factors why this first generation are not facing um, these health problems. Can you please a bit elaborate on this part of the article? Of course, this is um, a very pervasive finding, um, by the way, uh, that the first generation is healthier. Uh, and there's a, there's a, um, there's a concept uh, called the healthy migrant effect uh, in, in research, uh, which means that um, the people who arrived in a new country are usually healthier um, than, the, than the population they left behind. Um, but also they are healthier than the mean of the host population. Um, and the reason being um, that, um, I mean, there are many, many um, yeah, ways of understanding this, um, but there's a survival effect. People who are able to migrate means that they are stronger, uh, they are resilient, um, that um, maybe they have certain skills that um, kind of ended up with them being in the new country. There is what we call a selection bias in the sense that some countries like Germany invited healthy people uh, to come and be workers, which means the healthiest people such as in Turkey ended up uh, being in Germany. Um, and that kind of survival um, and selection means that uh, the first generation are usually is a very, very healthy generation. Um, however, this goes down um, and this doesn't, doesn't stay. The, the migrants don't stay healthier. Um, one understanding uh, in the literature before uh, Viral Fuentes did this research um, was that maybe it's practices such as diets. Um, you know, uh, most um, countries that say, industrialized later, um, have um, better dietary uh, practices. For example, they eat more fiber, they eat more legumes. Um, if you are a worker, you meet, it means that you, are, you exercise or like you are active uh, during the day, you're not sedentary. Um, that means that these practices are what makes you healthy. Um, and as you spend more time in the host country, um, your dietary practices also acculturate uh, to the uh, host culture and also maybe your exercise or your diet, uh, your sedentariness maybe also increase. Uh, so that was the explanation uh, until this paper, uh, which is also kind of partial explanation still. Uh, but what this paper showed um, is that the experience of discrimination and experience of othering also contributed to this fact that the second generation are either more exposed to these othering messages or they are more aware of these othering messages. 
than the first generation. Um, that's why this contributes to worse health outcomes for the second generation. Maybe they're more aware than the first generation because also maybe the first generation are feeling so less more. Um, so I think I, I thought that the second generation might feel more entitled, like entitled to also like question these othering because how can like othering is something that, hey, I was born here and, you know, why are you othering me? But I think first generation also have this hesitation of like entitlement. They don't feel that um that's entitled to the country and the feeling of othering. Yeah, okay, thank you so much. And I have this like one final question about um, your current research. So what are you currently researching? Many things. <clears throat> Many things. Um, my uh, current research that I've been involved in um, for about three years um, was the research that um, we collaborated with uh, on with Zeynep um, is on um, refugee minors access to mental health care um, and how they navigate the mental health system. Um, so that's the current project I'm employed in. Um, the other project that I'm involved in is in the Institute of Social Research Institute of Social Cohesion. Um, that is a um, large institute um, Germany. Um, and I'm leading a project on the health of marginalized population and what that means for social cohesion. Uh, so that's the second project that started. Uh, and the third project that I'm hasn't started, uh, but I'm trying to make it into a project um, is on uh, relational justice in research, um, which will hopefully look at ways of uh, making sure that uh, researchers and research participants gain the same amounts um, when a research um, study is carried out. You also do some research about like marginalized groups and LGBTQ community, also with the um, refugee um, LGBTQ community. And as also the relation to your um, question, how first generations are more healthier and like they arrive to the country as like more, we are survived and we're here. But would you also, is, the, is there research that is showing that that's also the same case for marginalized groups? Because I think LGBTQ people, they're coming with more like traumatic ex experience to a new country. Um, I mean, the, again, uh, there isn't um, these, I mean, the, the research that looks at um, these kind of uh, outcomes um, also usually um, kind of homogenizes a migrant group um, and assumes that the entire migrant group has the same kind of experiences. That's why I think uh, Viral Fantes' article is also important that it um, looks at different accounts of, of, of people without homogenizing their um, experiences. Uh, but I would say, um, which is something that is um, specific to LGBTQ um, migrant populations maybe, is that, uh, as you said, Tuche, they come with um, a lot of traumatic experiences depending on where they come from, of course. Um, not all countries, um, you know, uh, persecute um, sexual orientation, gender identity, 
uh, groups in a similar way. Um, but uh, for, I mean, if you have um, claimed asylum uh, based on discrimination, um, based on sexual orientation and uh, gender identity, this usually means that it comes with traumatic experiences. Um, and I would say that, um, I mean, again, uh, people who have made it here are exceptionally resilient. Uh, they're exceptionally strong. They're exceptional survivors. Um, but I see that as um, like an opportunity that is taken or not taken. It is if, um, if the trauma is recognized, if the trauma is addressed, uh, if people have access to care uh, that would support them through their trauma, I don't see why um, you know, uh, they couldn't be a very healthy members um, of uh, the new country's population. Um, however, if these are not addressed and these are left to be... Um, yeah, to, to just uh, be made worse. And also we know that the asylum process for LGBTQ people re-traumatizes people in the sense that you have to keep telling your story. You have to um, say what has happened in your uh, home country that led you uh, to seek asylum. Um, and these are very traumatizing. And um, also having a translator with you who comes from the same country as you, you don't know what their attitudes are towards uh, sexual orientation, gender identity. These are all very fearful, very traumatizing, very scarring experiences. Uh, and unless these uh, processes are also trauma-informed, um, I think this would mean that um, LGBTQ people, LGBTQ asylum seekers are made to have worse health um, through these structures. Uh, but this isn't inherent, this doesn't come from within, this isn't individualized. This brings um, us to our next section, the future. I would like to ask you, Judith, what changes would you like to see in the upcoming years regarding research on your topic like migration, health and othering? You have also talked with Tuche about the LGBT migration communities. Um, what changes we need in science? What changes we need in academia? First of all, I think we need um, um, these groups to be represented in academia. Um, I mean, I have always felt really awkward about, um, you know, being a cis person uh, working on trans issues. It really shouldn't be my place um, to do such work, but it's very, um, trans people really have a hard time uh, to find spaces uh, for themselves in uh, research. So one thing I would like to see is um, for LGBTQ people, um, ethnic minorities, uh, marginalized identities to be in research um, and doing these works uh, themselves without us um, having to do that. Um, so that kind of space I would like to see. Um, the other thing I would like to see specifically in German academia is fewer hierarchies, um, more 
kind of horizontal way of working with each other. Um, less power on professors, more power on the Mitabao, um, or like people who um, are doing their PhDs, who are new postdocs, who are doing their masters. Um, so I would like the power to be shared uh, between all the participants of academia, uh, because this affects how we do research um, quite a bit. And this affects um, how this knowledge is produced. The way that we produce knowledge is very hierarchized. And I don't think that's a good way to do um, research. Uh, so that's a change also I would like to see. Um, and also I would like to see, again, the German academia to be um, more international, to be more open to international corporations, to be multilingual, and I don't only mean English. Um, it's, yeah, many, I think, uh, languages um, such as Turkish, Arabic could be represented in the German academia because people who speak these languages are in academia. Um, yes, these are the change, changes that I'd like to see so that the research that we do is also better. The are together members of the Institute for Interdisciplinary Research on Conflict and Violence um, um, under the direction of Professor Dr. Andreas Zick. And um, I can see there are um, good examples in this institute. Um, we can speak the languages, we can do the research in diversity migration with interdisciplinary perspectives. And um, I would be happy that we can see these kind of good examples in academia in general. Um, Then one question um, for you, what would you like to personally contribute to, to addressing these issues and challenging in academia or in science? Yes, the, the research project that I was talking about, this relational justice, um, it's, I mean, it's at the stage of looking for funding. Uh, so I am at this point not sure whether this research is going to be funded. But if it gets funded, um, what I would like to see now um, is to challenge the structures within academia relationally. So when I mean relational justice in research, I don't only mean the relationship between the researchers and the research participants, but also the research structures in general, how research gets funded, um, who gets to speak for that, that research, who can apply to certain funding, um, what that means for all levels of researchers, from professors to uh, research assistants or student assistants working in a project, uh, and how knowledge is produced together. Um, and when we do research, who gets to be authors in the sense that whether, shouldn't the participants be also authors um, of their kind of of the knowledge that they contributed to. Um, so I hope um, to challenge these structures and I hope to, um, again, co-create uh, knowledge regarding how to address these issues with all the people who are involved in a research relationship. Um, but yes, I don't know whether this will get funded because it's the funders are also challenged and questioned by this research. So we'll see whether it will happen or not. I hope so. I'm pretty sure that you will um, get your um, funding for your projects and for your research. I mean, with respect 
to the previous successful steps you have done in research, I'm pretty sure that you will be um, get funded in that um, issue. So um, I want to ask Tuche, have you got some other questions from Potsdam? I remember you saying relational justice and you were saying last time we talked um, paying reparations. Like that word previously, it got stuck to me. Um, like maybe um, if you can um, talk about the relation between paying reparations with um, relational justice. Of course, I mean, the, the term relational justice comes from conflict research. Um, and it's, um, it talks about when, um, when atrocities happen in, in a society, in a country, um, in order for that society to move forward, um, there has to be some justice. Um, that is um, that is achieved for um, the victims of the process, um, and this has to be relational, meaning that um, the perpetrators have to um, make amends somehow. Um, reparations is just one of these um, amends that could be made, um, and like we we see that in in processes such as genocide, for example. Um, of course, this doesn't cover, um, yeah, like this doesn't undo any of the atrocities, uh, but there has to be a step in order for um, moving forward. Um, and research has been engaged in a lot of atrocities. Um, we know how um, research, a lot of the knowledge that we still use today come from colonial practices. Uh, a lot of the research uh, on health uh, come from um, settlers uh, going into you know, spaces that they have colonized uh, and colonizing um, other people's bodies without asking for consent, um, without um, yes, giving anything back, uh, basically. A lot of the things that we uh, who are kind of um, big terrorists or names in research are colonizers. Um, so we have to address this. Um, decolonizing practices are, of course, one process, but it, it, it has to be, in my feeling, it has to be solid. There has to be, uh, there has to be an apology. There has to be um, yeah, some kind of uh, either given authorship um, to these uh, kind of ideas um, or to pay something back um, from, yeah, from the institutes that actually earned a lot of money uh, from research practices. And I think that's part of what I mean by reparations. Mm -hmm. uh, but I also think that uh, it doesn't have to be on such a large scale. Um, I think like we could all go back and look, look back at any of our research practices uh, and see whether we have neglected uh, any process or whether there were any um, kind of unjust things that we have done in relation to our research practices. And I'm sure we will all find something um, because this isn't, we, we are not taught that. None of us are really uh, taught this aspect of relational ethics in, in, in our studies. We are taught about procedural ethics. We know what informed consent is. We know uh, what confidentiality means. We know about data protection, uh, but we don't actually, nobody teaches us about how to form a relationship from a human relationship 
um, with the participants um, that we do research with. Um, so I think that also means something on an individualized researcher base. I think we can all look back um, uh, if, if we have made any mistakes, we can reach out to the communities if they still welcome us um, and address these issues and ask if we can make anything better and also ask if we can make anything better for them. Um, and I, I think that's part of the responsibility. And I think this responsibility doesn't end after the research ends. Um, and yeah, if you have a 40 years of research career, mm -hmm. uh, I think you will find a lot of issues. Uh, I have, you know, 10 years research career and I have issues. I know, I know I have issues. Um, and I am trying to do that myself as well. Yeah, thank you. Um, these are all great suggestions and they make me think of the things I can do in my next research. So I want to ask you if you would create a checklist called how to conduct a relationally just and ethical research, what would be some of your concrete to-dos for this list? Um, I think what's one thing that can be done is to involve um, the people we want to do research with from the beginning. Um, I mean, I know at the PhD stage that doesn't really happen. Uh, at the PhD stage in Germany, you are usually hired into a project that's already funded. Um, so you don't necessarily have a say in um, what the topic is or what the research questions are. They're already settled and they're in front of you. Um, but still, um, during the kind of ethics application process, um, I think the... Um, like the representatives of the, the subpopulation that you want to do research with could be involved. Um, there should, I think, always be pilot studies um, that uh, take into account the ethical issues. Because usually when we do pilot studies, it's, it's only to see whether the procedure works or whether the instruments work uh, or whether the you know, interview questions work. It's never about the relationship. Um, like well, how that relationship should be. And I think the pilot studies should also address that. Um, and I think one issue is that there should always be some transfer. Um, even if, you know, as researchers at a certain point, at, a, at an early career researchers, we are not in the uh, process of, let's say, pay, paying uh, the participants or something when we don't have that power. I think we can still volunteer, spend, you know, spend our time uh, with uh, the communities, um, translate our research in a way that benefits um, the people, not just us, not just the researchers. Uh, so it's just, I know it's extra efforts. Uh, unfortunately, these efforts are not counted as our work time. They are not counted as, um, yeah, you cannot put this anywhere. Um, or like this usually doesn't mean anything for a person's career, um, but still, um, I think an extra effort should be done. Um, and I think this should come from, um, yeah, from, from top to bottom. Um, I don't, like there's also this issue of um, usually the younger people or the people with the earliest career stage having to do all of these things, having to volunteer, um, having to do all the work, having to do the pilot, having to you know, do about everything about the ethics. But I think it should come um, from the people with the most privilege. 
Um, so the professors, the PIs, uh, whoever has the most responsibility and whoever is going to gain the most uh, from this research relationship, I think they should be also the ones involved in all of these reparations or all of these um, relational giving back uh, parts of the research. I think all of these things you said are great and very valuable. And I'm hoping both junior and senior researchers to hear you out and also maybe start engaging in relational justice in their research already. You that your perspective is very, very empowering for us, especially for me. I am happy that we had the connection in frame of this podcast. As a wrapping up of this episode, one final question for you. How do you stay motivated as a researcher and lecturer in your job? Um, well, I mean, things like this helps. <laughs> um, I think um, like the teams that we build, the, the collaborators we have, um, I think keep us motivated. I know I have wonderful colleagues that I work with um, and I'm really excited to work with them and I'm really excited to um, see what new things we can create together. Um, so I think these teams uh, are really kind of motivating and I think that's um, also something that I could um, say to uh, people who are looking uh, for PhD places, for example. Um, I don't, I think the university doesn't matter. I think the topic doesn't really matter that much um, because there's so much time to do anything you want to do uh, in the future. I think what matters is the team, whether the team is supportive, what kind of growth potential um, these uh, kind of spaces uh, kind of give you because it's always the people uh, for me that keeps me motivated. It's always the people I work with. Um, and what we can co-create. And it's similar with, with teaching. I think I'm, I mean, I'm always so excited to see my students. Um, and one thing that I still miss every single day is my students uh, that I had to leave behind in Turkey when uh, my university was shut down. Um, and that's, yeah, like those kind of relationships, I think, um, what motivates me. And that's what, where the relational justice comes from. It's, I think, I think the, the work we do is so relational and, and motivation is also relational for me. Wow, thanks so much for this, um, yeah, for the statement. And it also motivated me right now. <laughs> Have you got um, some final statements, announcement or something else you want to like to share with us or with the audience right now? Um, I, I came to Germany as an um, at-risk scholar um, after my university was shut down. Um, I was teaching at Giddes University in Izmir and it was shut down under the um, statutory decree um, by the Turkish government. Um, and after that, of course, a lot of people um, were dismissed from their um, positions, their posts as um, university professors, university researchers. Um, and my colleagues who are back in Turkey are engaged in what we call solidarity academies. Um, so they are forming um, so many different structures that are research structures, knowledge structures that are outside of the university. Um, so although I said that universities are safe spaces for me, um, they weren't a safe space uh, for me back in Turkey. Um, and I 
think that Solidarity Academies are places like that. Um, and I would encourage anyone who um, listens to this podcast to check out the work that is being done um, in at research structures that are outside of universities. Um, one other structure in Germany is off university. Um, it is a structure where dismiss academics from Turkey and other places who cannot leave their country for many administrative reasons uh, can teach in German universities. Uh, and German universities could allow this to happen if they uh, offer a contract um, through this of university structure uh, to a dismiss academic who has so much knowledge uh, that they cannot necessarily share. Uh, so that's also something that I would encourage people who listen to this podcast uh, to check them out, take courses from off university, support off university, um, and just yeah, think outside of the university bubble uh, when we talk about uh, research. Thanks, Judith, a lot. Thank you so much for joining us today um, and for helping us also increase the visibility of outstanding social scientists as yourself and of cutting-edge research. And thank you for all listening and um, talk soon on the other episodes. Have a nice day, have a nice week and um, talk soon. Thank you for having me here. I mean, I'm really, I'm really happy to have been invited and I'm really happy to have had this conversation with you. Minor revisions for the music, you profiles for post-production and Lotte Koeman for the logo design. Make sure to follow us on social media at Researching Diversity.